Broadcasting from the historic Habern Building in downtown Louisville, it's time for Single Payer Radio, a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky Chapter of Physicians for a National Health Program. We believe a national, publicly funded, nonprofit single payer system is the solution to the current dysfunctional system that values profit and stockholder returns over patients. The views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. I'm Mark McKinley, a volunteer with the group. Single Payer Radio can be heard on WFMP 1065 on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m. If you can't pick up our signal in your neighborhood, no problem. You can live stream us at forwardradio.org. And if you miss a show or want to re-listen, then you can go to our archives at forwardradio.org. And briefly, thanks to Gillian over at Healthcare Now podcast team. We have permission to broadcast their recent episode with activist author Suzanne Gordon. We've had Suzanne here on the show a couple times. She's talked about the VA healthcare system and nursing in the U.S. health system. Healthcare Now is sponsoring an online Medicare for All strategy conference April the 2nd and 3rd. For more info, you can go to healthcare hyphen now.org. You can register at the Healthcare Now website. Check it out. Mike? Yeah, this is uh, Michael Flynn. Uh, let me begin with the usual disclaimer that any comments that I make uh, during this uh, program represent my personal views and do not represent the views of the University of Louisville or Department of Surgery. I'm Eugene Shively, a retired surgeon from Campbellsville, Kentucky. My views are those of mine only. I uh, do not represent Taylor Regional Hospital nor the University of Louisville Department of Surgery. Well, our, our topic for today is uh, uh, something that's a huge problem for this country. Uh, the opioid crisis and opioid addiction uh, we have a special guest today, um, Pat Murphy. Um, Pat runs the uh, Murphy Pain Center in, in New Albany. He graduated from uh, UofL Medical School, uh, spent some time as a Navy flight surgeon, uh, did an anesthesia residency at a UofL Pain Medicine Fellowship at the Mayo Clinic, has a master's in medical management from the um, University of South Carolina, uh, California, Marshall School of Business. Uh, Pat, uh, uh, thank you for joining us. We uh, appreciate your willingness to come on and talk about this issue. Um, as we have done with guests in the past, we're going to give you an opportunity to make whatever comments you want to make. Uh, on this topic for as long as you want to make them. And when you're done, we'll begin the conversation. So the floor is yours. Okay, well, thank you so much for inviting me. This is a, an issue that is on everyone's mind these days. And uh, I'm just uh, pleased to be here. I do want to uh, 
if I if I may uh, let the listeners know that uh, I'm all I, in addition to being a pain specialist and an anesthesiologist, I am also an addiction medicine specialist, and I treat addiction. Uh, I am involved in some organizations, and I don't speak for them today. I'm speaking only for myself, so that's my disclaimer. But I am currently the president of the Kentucky Society of Addiction Medicine, which represents the doctors and uh, that, that treat addiction in the state of Kentucky. I am um, also active with the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and I'm the representative on the American Medical Association's Substance Use and Pain Care Task Force from the American Society of Addiction Medicine. And finally, um, I'm also a, uh, I'm, I'm a gratis professor at U University of Louisville, proudly a professor at University of Louisville. I am also on the board of the Kentucky Harm Reduction Coalition. So that's a little bit of my, of my background as well. Most of what I do is pain management, but I, a large part of my passion of what's important to me and actually a part of my practice is actually treating addiction. And I am not a psychiatrist as my background would, would be testimony to. I'm, I'm, I'm more, I'm a, I'm a medicine doctor. I'm a, I'm, I, I do treatments that we call evidence-based that um, are things like uh, you may have heard of them, Suboxone or uh, uh, buprenorphine for to treat opioid use disorder, things of that nature. Uh, I, you know, I tend to refer people out for counseling and things of that nature to treat, uh, you know, addiction as well. But uh, a lot of what I'm, what I'm going to talk about today, from my perspective, is some of the the uh, science behind addiction, so that or your listeners can understand that addiction is really not a moral issue. Uh, people look at it that way. That I mean, people that have addiction do things that are we would consider immoral. But what it is is it, it's a disease and there's actually a, a, it's a treatable disease. There are, there are medications and treatments that actually work to treat addiction. So if you can view addiction as being in that context, more of a, a disease process with treatment, then it takes some of the stigma away. And then you can start having ways to combat this crisis. So it is indeed a crisis and we have gone through obviously the uh the COVID-19 uh catastrophe and it's still going on and we're kind of hopefully getting near some of the end of that but what has been parallel to this coronavirus crisis and actually worsened as a result of this is the opioid and overdose crisis we have in this country uh, it's almost been like a perfect storm. It's worse. It's worsened it. And that is not going away. Uh, we see the numbers from COVID-19 dropping down. We're all happy about that. Unfortunately, the numbers from addiction are going in the opposite direction. It's like the coronavirus, the COVID-19 crisis kindled this, uh, this, this opioid crisis that we have, this overdose crisis, this addiction crisis. And it's made it worse than ever. It's uh, just to give us a, a sobering statistic. In the last 12 months, where they measured this, more than 100,000 Americans died from drug overdoses. And that's the most that has ever been recorded in a single year in this country. And that's according to the, the, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC. 
So it's it's more than it's ever been. We had we had a, a couple years a while back from maybe trending down a little bit, making some headway, but in the tail end and in the, in the aftermath of this COVID crisis, it is worse than it's ever been. And that's all across the country. And it's certainly the same in Kentucky. In Kentucky, we've had the most deaths ever recorded. The, uh, and it's staggering. The number of deaths were up almost 30% from the prior year, a 30, a 30% increase d- despite all that we're doing, that you hear about that we're doing to combat this crisis. It was still it was up 30%. Now that's nearly three times that of traffic deaths. And that's twice that of gun deaths during the same period. I mean, this is a huge problem that is getting worse, unfortunately. Most of the deaths were actually due to opioids. And really, more than half of them were, were as a result of fentanyl. Fentanyl is a uh, extremely powerful narcotic opioid, uh, most often added illegally to drugs to enhance their potency. It's an opioid. Uh, it is causing people to uh, overdose and die in staggering numbers. So we have an issue here. We have we have a tremendous problem. There is some, some hope, though, and that's part of that's really what I want to get to today is how do we get out of this? You know, what do we do? And it really boils down to three things. And it sounds like a kind of the way we approach the COVID crisis as well. We have to focus on prevention. We have to focus on treatment and then focus on the concept of harm reduction. And I'm, I'm going to explain that later because harm reduction is a very important component of this. And uh, with that, um, uh, I will. I know you have some questions for me, and I can I can get into those uh, topics as well. But uh, maybe this is a good point to stop and open it back up to uh, you guys. That's great. I'm going to let Gene fire the first round across your bow. Well, I've been interested in how we got into this uh, problem. I I've been practicing. Uh, for 44 years in Campbellsville. And I remember in the eighties and nineties, we had a few addicts and uh, more alcoholics, but why did uh, suddenly the number of addicts uh, dramatically increase? Okay. That's uh, the part of the problem is that the supply of what people were using just ballooned. And, um, you know, people in human nature is that people will tend to use drugs that's available to them. I mean, if there was no alcohol at all, we wouldn't have alcoholism. But you know, people will use what's available to them. So, what happened is around the uh, '80s and into the '90s, uh, early, uh, late '90s, there was a really pu- a big push by uh, the the government. There was a push by uh, healthcare organizations and also drug companies that were making opioids to aggressively treat pain because we had a chronic pain crisis in this country as well, which, by the way, we still do. People um, uh, are living longer with diseases and with injuries. And uh, there is that's uh, that could be for another topic. But uh, what happened was 
we have millions of people that have chronic pain. And the thought was amongst experts in this field that you could treat people with opioids, which we, you know, we talk to them as narcotics, but medically they're opioids. They're drugs that are really kind of related to opium, related to morphine. So they're opioids. So people would be treated with these drugs and they would, uh, you know, if they have legitimate pain, they wouldn't become addicted. And um, we were treating them with very high doses and a lot of patients did well, but there is a, a, a percentage of people that are predisposed to becoming addicted to substances and certainly opioids would be one of them. And so when they were exposed to this and, and so many patients were getting these medica medications, that a number of them got became addicted to it. Also, once their pain was treated, uh, they kept getting the medications and were diverting them into the community. So people who were not having pain were getting access to these pills on the street. So what happened was, you know, with that that over prescribing uh, happened. Then we then we kind of realized, and I say we, everybody, the medical profession as well, those of us who prescribe. We realized that maybe we've been too generous with these medicines. So new regulations came out, guidelines. And so we were prescribing less of this. However, the, the fires had already been stoked. So people uh, were finding that, that there was a need, there was a desire for opioids on the street. And so when the number of pills went down and prescribing has gone down quite a bit in the last decade, it's gone down quite a bit. However, the overdoses have gone up 300%. Why is that? Because even though the number of pills have gone down, there's been an influx of illegal medicines and illegal drugs to fill that gap. And, and think about it. I mean, you can kind of control what, how much doctors prescribe. I mean, you, you, can, you can give guidelines and say, we're going to prescribe less, but you can't really control. I mean, you try what comes across our borders, you can't control what's on the street. And so this unending sort of supply of illicit drugs has, has gone, gone on over the past decade. And that is really fueling what's going on now, this, uh, this opioid, this addiction crisis that we have, because there's just so much of it out there. So that's kind of how it got started. In a nutshell, that's kind of where we are now. And it gives us an idea about how maybe we got to combat this. Um, I do want to take a, a, a moment here and, and explain what addiction is. So we were talking about the same thing. Um, addiction is a disease. And um, I'm, I'm now paraphrasing what the American Society of Addiction Medicine, you know, that's their diagnosis of addiction. So they're the experts in this. Uh, so addiction is a, uh, it's a, it's a, first of all, it's a treatable it's a chronic medical disease. You notice the word medical disease involving complex interactions in the brain. Also genetics are involved. The environment a patient lives in is involved and an individual's life experiences. So basically addiction is a brain disorder. What happens is there is a part of the brain that uh, subconsciously tells us to you know, look for things that are pleasing or things that will, it's called the reward system in the brain. And uh, think about it when you're hungry and you take a bite of, uh, you know, something delicious and you have this pleasurable feeling, 
that's going on in the reward center of the brain. It, it, it helps people, it helps, you know, humans find uh, love, find shelter, find warmth, find food, find things that uh, are, are pleasing to them. It's, it's, a, it's a positive thing. What happens, however, in addiction is that the, uh, the stimulus to that area is so intense, it damages that circuit in the brain. And then it becomes to where there is always a deficit. There's always lack of the chemicals that are necessary to, to fill that void. Uh, I've, heard, I've heard one uh, parent that lost a child uh, describe it as it's a, it's a hole in your soul. And it feels that way. It, 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 that part of the brain also allows people to have what, what we, you know, self-worth, to feel loved, to feel good about themselves. So with that area of the brain damaged, without something to fill that void, they don't just have you know, an absence of being high. They feel horrible. They feel terrible. Just physically, emotionally, and even on a deep subconscious level, they feel worthless as a human. And they're going to have to find some way to fill that void or otherwise it's just, it's just overwhelmingly miserable. So that's, that's part of what's, what feel, fuels that behavior. And if you understand what's going on in the, in the brain, then you can direct therapies to treat that. And some of them are psychological therapy. Some of it's, uh, you know, psychos, uh, counseling, things of that nature, 12-step programs. I call it, you can, you can almost love your way out of this somehow, but some people need more than that. A lot of people need actual medications that kind of hit those receptors in the brain that kind of fill that void. Think about somebody with diabetes. Um, some people can treat their diabetes with losing weight, watching their diet, exercising. They're pre-diabetic and they, you know, they do okay, but they're still, they're still on the verge of diabetes, but they got to watch, they got to watch things. Some people have disorders of their pancreas or they don't even create insulin and they're never going to have normal blood sugars. They're never going to be healthy unless they get insulin and they get the injections and they'll get pills. Some of them get uh, these infusions that do they wear on their belts? They give them insulin, you know, around the clock and they can lead normal lives. They are, they can, uh, you know, be active and do, you know, and be as active as anybody else. But then when they don't have the insulin, however, then the harmful consequences of diabetes come up. That's kind of the way addiction is in a lot of people because of that, that brain issue. If they don't have treatment, that's, that's covering that area of their brain. They'll have the, the consequences in addiction, however, are not so much below blood sugars, high blood pressure, things like that. It's this, these, these feelings we talked about, these emotions, uh, these deep, uh, that, that hole in the soul. So we have to find ways of healing that. So it is a, the first thing that the American Society of Addiction Medicine says is it's a treatable chronic medical condition. So any listeners out there that are, think they're struggling with addiction, I want you to know that the definition of addiction is that it is, first of all, it's treatable. And it's chronic. It's a medical disease. It is not a moral failing. And so um, with that being said, um, I guess I hope I, I've, I've answered your question. Um, 
but uh, I think I've got off track there. But I want to make I want to make that point very, very clear early on in this. Uh, Pat, let's uh, take this. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if a step forward or a step back. Who, who, who and I don't know if you can answer this, but who, who are, are, are the addicts? Um, are they young? Are they old? White, black, brown? And then after you've answered that question, if you could then move on to kind of a second part and, and, and indicate what, what are the sort of predicting factors, if, if the predisposing factors to whoever, whoever the, the other demographic of, of, of the, the addict. Okay. Well, first of all, I'd like to, uh, if I may, um, I, want, I want to get away. Language is important. And I think that in this field, especially, there's been a lot of uh, hurtful language. You know, you talk about people being junkies or whatever, things of that nature. But, uh, you know, these are, these are patients. These are people. These are, these are our friends, our neighbors, our, our loved ones, our sons, our daughters. These are people that are, have a disease. So we call, I like to call them uh, patients with addiction, people with addiction. Uh, addicts is, um, uh, you can uh, kind of have as, as, a, as a negative connotation. So, uh, so if I may, these people that with the disease of addiction, people with addiction, um, generally speaking, uh, they're, it seems to be, a, a younger age group because the developing brain is very sensitive to these stimuluses, these stimuli, these medications, these, these opioids, alcohol, uh, methamphetamine, uh, things of that nature, cocaine, things that would, that would be stimulating to the brain uh, in this area. Young people are very sensitive to that because their brain's developing. So that's why we really need to do our best to encourage young people to not experiment, not use these medications despite peer pressure or whatnot. But uh, it can, it can hit anybody from any age, but it tends to be younger people uh, in their fifties and younger uh, that, um, you know, are really struggling with this, but it can, it can certainly hit any age. It um, from a standpoint of, uh, you know, race or economic uh, uh, numbers or whatever uh, it's uh, those are factors involved and it does addiction does disproportionately affect uh, people of color and uh, people that are traditionally marginalized communities um, a d- director of the uh, National Institute of Drug Addiction uh, uh, director Nora Volko uh, she has a great, she has a quote that I want to give you here. Uh, she said, uh, systemic racism fuels the opioid crisis just as it contributes mightily to other areas of health disparities and inequity, especially for black people. And so, uh, you know, they, in uh, areas where uh, they're, they, you know, there's not enough services it's uh, going to be a problem because the treatment's a big part of this. In fact, between uh, between 2002 and 2010, you know, last decade, um, and even continuing today, there is a, there's been a decline in the number of both public and private nonprofit outpatient substance use disorder facilities. And uh, there's been uh, the, the drop in the number of treatment facilities has been felt most uh, uh, acutely 
in areas where, you know, there are, you know, a high percentage of, of black residents, for example, they are uh, disproportionately burdened by this decline in public facilities. So we really need to focus on those factors to, to uh, you know, treat this problem as well. But, um, but so, but anybody, you know, is, nobody's immune from this disease. And um, I can say this, that there are some factors that we look at it to, uh, you know, predict what, you know, might make you more prone to it. There are, you know, factors that are involved the person, there are factors that involve the environment, and there are factors that involve the actual substance. So let's talk about the person first. So, you know, everyone has their unique biology, you know, and you also have your, your genes. And believe it or not, genetics are a big part of this. And some people have estimated that as much as 40 to 60% of the risk is contributed to by your genes, your family. So, and that's just, that doesn't mean like your distant family, but people that have personal relatives, that means your father, your mother, sister, brother, even your child. If they have a problem with addiction, then uh, you might be at risk for addiction as well. So it does run in families. So keep that in mind. There's a high genetic component to it. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the age at which you start using drugs is important. Younger people, their brains are developing. So the, the, uh, the keeping people that are young and with the developing brains off uh, these drugs is very important. Some people are very sensitive to the drugs too. So, I mean, some people can, can drink alcohol and say, I don't, I don't feel a thing. Others can, you know, they get uh, intoxicated very easily. So depending upon how a drug affects you, I've had some people that take, you know, patients of mine that take a pain medicine uh, after an, uh, a surgery, for example, and say, well, I don't feel anything. But in fact, it makes me kind of sick. Others will say, you know, Dr. Murphy, I, I liked that medicine too much. Uh, I'll say, yeah, you probably are genetically predisposed to liking that medicine. So we're not going to use that one anymore on you. <laughs> Consider yourself kind of allergic to that. You know, like, you know, my, for example, with this, if it's Percocet and you like it too much. Yeah, I, I actually, my pain got better, but I also felt really good and energetic. Okay, maybe you shouldn't be taking Percocet then because maybe you, you, are going to be more sensitive to that, you know, the bad effects of that medicine. Also, people that with uh, certain mental illnesses, that uh, such as depression, anxiety, ADD, and uh, some, uh, they they are more likely uh, to uh, maybe use other opioids and medications for non medical purposes, and that can also predispose them. Interesting enough. Uh, Used to be kind of a gender gap here, where the men were more likely to become addicted to drugs than women. But, but uh, I guess in the name of, of equality, the, the women are closing that gap now. So, uh, it you know I don't think that it's a major uh, difference between men and women in this. There is some difference as well. Uh, ethnicity is a factor, and and some people uh, genetically because of their ethnic background are more sensitive to medicines. Uh, they can't maybe they don't have the enzyme to digest alcohol as as easily as another ethnicity might. It tends to run in that way. But uh, and it's also societal factors about where you know people are placed in society and where they live. And, and so there are some ethnic ethnicity factors. Environmentally, 
where they live, you know, where you live, who you, who you hang out with. Uh, I know Alcoholics Anonymous has a, a great statement that's the same. It's been around for a long time. And they say, you know, avoid, avoid triggers of persons, places, and things that trigger uh, you to want to use again. And uh, it's true. I mean, if, if people in your family around you, your peers are using, that's a risk factor. Uh, also, the availability. I mentioned that earlier. If, if, if there's a lot of the, the drug around you and it's easily available to you, then that's a risk factor. And this is something to keep in mind. Social stressors. Uh, we're going through a lot right now. With, uh, and we went, we just went through a lot with the COVID crisis. We're still going through it, but now people are worried about Ukraine and World War III and everything and the, the gas prices and inflation and jobs, all this stuff is, is just causing stress. And social stress leads people to look for other outlets for, to deal with that, one of which could be using drugs. And that's, that's a risk factor. So those are some of the things that we can look to. And if you think about all those risk factors, you can look at ways of doing of prevention as well. When you think about those, those things, a lot of it just has people need to just be aware that, you know, because of these risk factors, and I mentioned genetics is a big one. Um, just, uh, you know, try to avoid exposing yourself to those, the environment, to the person's places and things that might uh, you know, lead you down that pathway. As I, uh, as a surgeon, um, how how can we recognize a person who may have a genetic defect or more susceptible to drugs? And how should we change the medication that we give them post-op to try to prevent that person from getting addicted to drugs in the post-op period? Well, I think the first thing to do is to be aware that it's an issue and also be aware that people have pain and they deserve to be treated for their pain and they need to be treated for their pain. Otherwise, they're going to have, have disability and bad outcomes as well. So I'm, I, in no way am I saying that we should not aggressively treat pain, but uh, some pain you know, from surgeries are respond very well to anti-inflammatory medicines. Others uh, don't respond so well. I mean, uh, anytime there's a you know, a cut on your surgery, there's going to be some inflammation. So to a degree, anti-inflammatories will, will, will work, but they also can increase bleeding. So you've got to balance it, you know, the, the pros and cons of the anti-inflammatories. But when you can use other measures besides opioids, maybe, a, maybe the anesthesiologist can give a nerve block, you know, so to numb the extremity for a while. Uh, uh, some topical agents, there's things called uh, TENS units, which, uh, you know, kind of stimulate on the skin that kind of got blocks and pain but but just being aware that look at the other options and not just as a as a knee-jerk reaction say well i'm going to give you my usual dose of uh, you know seven days or 14 days of of percocet for example so think about that but also you know realize that we do need to treat their pain um in kentucky there's been a a, a law passed recently that says that uh, you know for the most part for uh, the first prescription it should be three days. And I think that the uh, CDC guidelines kind of talk about three to seven days as being the window for a first prescription. Most people can get by on, on less medicine than we had been prescribing in the past. But what you do is you can give them a smaller amount and then, then be available for them in a, in a few days 
and say, you know, do you need more? How are you doing? You know, and also aside from that, just asking the question, screening patients, you know, and really the first thing that we need to ask is just frankly, have you ever, ever had a problem with drugs or alcohol? And oftentimes they'll tell you, they'll tell their doctor, they'll tell them in confidence. And that's important to know because if they've had a personal issue with it in the past, you know, well, they're probably at high risk for having an issue in the future. And then the next question is, has any of your close relatives had a problem with drugs or alcohol? So just those two questions by themselves, um, you know, will be a good screening test. You know, you ask them in the last year, have you, you know, been in, have you had a problem with drugs or alcohol you know, in the last year? And they might tell you that as well. So, uh, I mean, just, just being aware and asking the questions, giving them less, using other modalities as you can to, to treat their pain, but uh, maybe not with the, the uh, higher amounts that we were used to giving in the past. And then also telling people, I think in Kentucky, it does, uh, it does. And by the way, the regulation in Kentucky, to my knowledge, does not apply to surgery. You are, as a surgeon, able to give two weeks of the medication without you know, much of an issue. So for surgeries, it's two weeks from, for most everything else, it's, it's, they want you to do three days initially, unless you can justify in the record why you're given more. So Pat, Pat give us a, a kind of a, a listener friendly overview of the treatment process for an opioid addiction. Uh, I, I mean, I'm assuming there are different levels and grades of it, but, you know, just so that the listeners get a sense of what what's the process and how do you, you know, what are the different options or the different methods that you can use to treat somebody who, who you would you would identify or, or, or you know, diagnose with this this condition? Certainly, uh, the uh, <clears throat> the most most people uh, don't get treatment. In fact, uh, statistically, about one in ten people with a substance use disorder, receive any type of specialty treatment. So there is a real lack of treatment out there. Now, is that, is that an issue of our healthcare system or is that an issue that these people haven't sought treatment? It is both, but it certainly is an issue of our healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, Two thirds of the people that, that need treatment uh, don't have insurance or don't have don't have access to it because of insurance and insurance <clears throat> lack of insurance has been cited in uh, studies as the number one reason why people do not follow through with treatment so you know the, yeah it is it's, it's a huge issue the, the availability of treatment the, the, the availability of treatment is one thing we need more people that will we need more facilities we need more people to treat this crisis we need to to, to deal with it like it's like we're dealing with COVID as a huge crisis. We need more people treating it. We also uh, need people to have access to it and they don't have access. The, the medications are expensive. Uh, they can't afford, they can't afford Suboxone, for example, it's difficult. Methadone clinics are really hard to get into sometimes and they, they are expensive. Insurance may not cover them. Uh, also uh, people may not want to, they're, they're private about it. They, they, they don't want to, uh, let their insurance company know or let anybody know they're getting treated for this because of this, the shame and stigma. That's a barrier that we have to get over as well. So, uh, 
yeah, so the uh, the insurance is an issue. The availability is a big issue uh, in terms of uh, people getting treatment. So you, tell us about the process, though. Okay. Well, there there's no one size fits all, and it really should be individualized. But a lot of people, it starts with uh, somebody being ready for treatment, and they, they're ready, and they and it's we talk hit rock bottom or whatever. We've heard that term before, but there's a what's called a readiness to change. Somebody is is open, and when you when you as a as a clinician or as a doctor or a family member, when you when you seize that moment, when your loved one or even you, when you have that moment where you know clarity where the disease process is allowing you to think clearly just for a moment. And you realize I have got to do something. I've got to change something here. That moment of clarity is a golden moment and it must be acted upon. That's when somebody's open to getting treatment and you can get them places and, and work with them. However, however you can, most of the treatment is, uh, is, is, is there might be, community-based, uh, like a 12-step program or a peer group or something of that nature, or, or uh, even with your church, things, you know, the people uh, that are working with you trying to, you know, get you to, to uh, have a way to change that, that destructive behavior. And, uh, but a lot of people need to have detoxification. They need to get the medicine, the drug out of their system. Now, you can be treated, even though you're, even when you're using you can be treated. In fact, there's a, there's a concept of, of what's called harm reduction, where the idea is to just, it's, you know, think about it, like clean needle exchange and, and giving people Narcan so they don't overdose and die. If you can avoid that, you know, from the opioids, uh, you're not, you're not, uh, you know, supporting addiction by doing that. What you're doing is keeping people alive until they are ready, till they have that moment of clarity where the disease lets them seek out treatment and people that, that are involved in harm reduction, like the clean needle exchange and, and the Narcan distributions, they are, they are many times more likely to go into treatment than somebody who is not in a harm reduction program. So keep that in mind when we're, we're talking about the importance of harm reduction. But, but the start, I think if you look at a pyramid, you know, the, the big base of the pyramid is psychotherapy, counseling, 12-step programs. And then, uh, you know, there's you know, this in the detoxification facilities where, you know, you, you go in and you, you get off the, the drugs. I got to tell you, that's important because you can really, you can't really can't do therapy, uh, psychotherapy until you have the drugs out of your system. I mean, it's really not as effective. You can do it, but it's really most effective when you're thinking more clearly. And that detoxification has to occur, but that does not mean your addiction, your disease is treated. It just means the drug is out of your system. So you, you get the drug out of your system, then then you follow through with the treatment. And then um, then treatments consist of what, uh, like I said, the mostly psychotherapy. But we have treatments for opioid use disorder. We have treatments, uh, and it's there's uh, the main ones are the buprenorphine. Which is which is suboxone? You've heard of suboxone before. Methadone, but and there are methadone clinics where you think people can get that. And then there, the third thing is that naltrexone, which is uh, the basically the antidote to opioids, and that's usually an injection. 
uh, it lasts once a, you know, usually once a month, something of that nature. Now you can't get the injection for the naltrexone unless you have been detoxified, unless the opioid is out of your system. Because if opioids in your system, while you're getting the uh, naltrexone, it will put you into withdrawal. So that's the one thing, the, uh, the naltrexone has been had some success in keeping people who are off the opioids, keeping them off the opioids. But I can tell you that the naltrexone is so much less effective in um, keeping people in treatment than the buprenorphine, which is suboxone and the methadone. The buprenorphine, the suboxone and the methadone have long track records, lots of evidence to show they are very effective in helping people stay in treatment and stay alive and, 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 and live with uh, this disease process and actually treat it. We call that these evidence-based treatments. So if there's one message that I want to get out there as well, that using methadone or using suboxone or buprenorphine is not replacing one addiction for another. I've heard this in, in self-help groups and people that I've, you know, places where I've been, uh, the, the worry is that, well, you're just, you're, you're addicted to heroin. So you're just making yourself addicted to Suboxone. And that is so not the case. What you're doing with Suboxone is you're treating those receptors in that part of the brain and calming them down. It is a medical treatment. It's not being addicted to another drug. In fact, People I mean, that take Suboxone for their treatment, you don't get high off the Suboxone. What it does is may, it might bring you back to where you feel like a more normal person, but there's really, there's really no high in most people with, with Suboxone or with buprenorphine. Uh, that, that's, that's not to say you can't get a problem with it. And people can abuse those drugs. But honestly, most of the Suboxone that is diverted or on the street is not used by people to get high. It's used by people to self-treat their own addiction because they can't get it from someplace else or they, they're afraid to, or there's a stigma to, to it. But uh, the Suboxone treatments, which, which can be done by any doctor who has a DEA license and, and has a, a little extra training that they can get online. And then you can get like a little, uh, it's called a waiver from DEA. So any prescriber, any, any prescriber with a DEA license can get that training and prescribe Suboxone out of their office. Now, methadone right now has to be done with a, uh, at a methadone clinic that's, that's really you know, restricted by the, you know, the U.S. government, their regulations for that. There's a bill before Congress now that is going to try to open that up to where certain physicians that have, you know, you know, especially training can treat with methadone for addiction out of the, out of their offices, which would open up again, more services for people, but suboxone buprenorphine should be available uh, everywhere. It should be very, very common. Unfortunately, most doctors that have that waiver do not treat to their limit because there's, there's kind of the government kind of gives them a, a limit to what they can treat, but they they're way below their limit or they don't do it at all. And the number of doctors with DEA licenses who actually get this training and do it is, is extremely low. So that's where we could make, so if there's any physicians out there listening to this, 
that's where we can make a huge impact. If any, everybody would just look into this, realize that it's a huge crisis and they can help out by just treating five or 10 people in their practice. If everyone did that, we would really make a big dent in this. COVID crisis came. I mean, I had some time on my hands because I had to go telemedicine and I kept my, you know, my practice wasn't, it wasn't as busy because of the, we were, we shut it down basically. So what I had time. So like a lot of people, I went down to the, uh, you know, Kentucky Fair Exposition Center and what the uh, Broadbent Arena, I volunteered and I gave out some shots and I, you know, I helped out with, with as a doctor. I'm, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I can give shots. And so I gave the, helped out at Broadbent Arena. But, you know, every, if every physician that had a DEA license said, you know, I'm going to read a little more about this because it is a huge issue. I think I'm going to treat maybe five or 10 patients. I'm going to take a few PPL people on. I tell you what, as somebody who just, you know, I, I didn't start out in medical school wanting to become an addiction specialist. I just found out that it was necessary and important and about once I became certified in anesthesiology, I finished the Navy, I finished my pain fellowship, I was an anesthesiologist, and it just it just was obvious that there's a need for this, and it's, it was so necessary, and I tell you what, as a physician, it is incredibly gratifying. It is one of the most gratifying things. Everything I do is I think I, I, I enjoy, and I, I'm privileged to be a physician, but one of the most gratifying things that I do is, is to give people treatment for their addiction, their opioid use disorder, and, and, and allow them with very little effort on my part, honestly, to lead more normal lives. It's just a very, uh, very necessary. So if there's any doctors out there, or if you have patients uh, talking to your doctors, uh, have them look into that because that's where we can make a big, a big dent in this. I have a question about Suboxone. Should you gradually reduce the dose and try to get people off Suboxone or should you treat them with a maintenance dose over a long period of time? Generally, when you have uh, an opioid addiction and that part of your brain is damaged, think about, the, think about how long it will take for nervous tissue to recover. Usually it's a long time. If ever think about people that have strokes, for example, I mean, they have those deficits in their brain. They have the stroke symptoms for the rest of their lives. Some people they'll recover. So it's the same thing with addiction and with Suboxone. Some people will just need it as a bridge to get to their trick, to get to their, we call it in many respects, uh, medication, medication assisted treatment. So they're using the Suboxone to, to calm everything down, to take away those cravings, those withdrawal symptoms, and then they can get into therapy and they do, they, they do okay. Some people need to stay on the Suboxone for long periods of time, and then they can get off of it. They can try to taper gradually, but there's no reason you, have to, you must taper. I mean, unless, you know, I guess people just want to, and then the cost can be a problem. They lose their insurance. But Think about like, like I said, with diabetes, if you have, have a, a diabetic condition to where you're not making insulin and then, you know, later on you say, well, I've lost weight. I, uh, you know, I'm, I've exercised now. I think I'm going to do without the insulin. Well, they're still going to die because they're not going to have insulin 
they're going to, you know, have a, a crisis uh, with their blood sugar and they're going to die because they just don't have insulin. Some people's brains will always need that medication like Suboxone. So it's, it's, it's individual, but we do not encourage people to uh, aggressively try to get off of this. People in my specialty that uh, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, there is no there's no push to get people once they're stabilized on the medication to get off of it anytime soon, but we can bring it up and it's always on the table. And I have patients that ask me where they want to get off of it. And I'll say, you know, why do you want to get, get off of it? I had somebody the other day asked me, you know, I, I just want to get off this stuff. And I said, but you're doing so well. And this is a professional doing, doing fantastic. I just, I'm just so tired of people just knowing that I'm on this and they look at you terribly and they, it's a stigma. And so I spent like the next 30 minutes telling this person that, you know, you know, you shouldn't be ashamed of this. You should be proud. This is nothing. And this is nobody's business. This is medication treatment. I said, own it. You you are doing great with this. And uh, maybe if you go off this medication, you can destabilize and you be back to where you were. I said, but I'll work with you either way. But if we're going to do it, it's going to be extremely gradual. And I'm going to be there for you in case you feel the cravings come back. But it's not weakness on your part. It is not, it's not a problem. If you want to stay on this medication, you certainly, uh, it's very reasonable to do that. So to answer your question, it's individualized, but for most people, it is long-term. So give us a, give us an idea, kind of an overview about how effective the, the, the treatment is for someone with an opioid uh, problem. Um, I had heard there was a talk from a previous health commissioner from Kentucky, which is maybe five or six years ago. And one of the things that stayed with me was he indicated that the recidivism rate for treatment was almost 70, was over 70%, you know, which is just, and it's incredible, you know, you get treated, have an overdose, you get into treatment again, have an, it just seemed to be this ongoing scenario. So uh, is that something that's still true today or just kind of, uh, you know, give us a sense of where the, the, the effectiveness of treatment. Well, people that uh, are taking these medications, um, they're, it's about, they're about 50, 50% more likely or, or, or so to stay in treatment. So if you st- if you stay in treatment, then you're likely to do better. Now, the, the idea that there's recidivism or you're going to go back to, a, you know, a, you know, using these drugs at some point and fall off the wagon, as you will. This is a uh, something we never want to have happen, but it's a natural history of this condition. I mean, uh, it's like any other chronic disease. At some point, it could get worse. At some point, it could come back. Think about people that have cancer in remission. You know, it, it might come back. People that, again, the diabetes uh, uh, example, uh, at some stage in life, things could get worse. Uh, or somebody could just quit, take, quit taking the, you know, their, the, the medication and then have some issues or problems with it. And addiction is no different than other chronic diseases. There is a, uh, the, the, we call it a relapse. Sometimes the possibility of a relapse is always there. It's common. It doesn't mean failure. It doesn't mean 
that uh, the other treatments didn't work. It means that the, 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 the disease has gotten, it's come back, it's gotten worse again. So the important thing is that the person with this, with addiction has a framework and you know, recognizes it and their loved ones recognize this and, and okay, we know what to do now. We know what worked in the past. Let's get back into treatment. Let's get back. Let's, let's go back into therapy, back into treatment. Let's do these things that are going to make me well again. And it may be that uh, there's, there's the pain has triggered the, the addiction to come back. It may be like people that have chronic pain, you know, they may have had an accident. Uh, it may be that they've, uh, they've lost their job or that their, their bipolar disease or something of that nature has gone off the rails a little bit. There's a lot of reasons that, uh, people can, you know, uh, relapse in a sense. And it's not necessarily, uh, you know, uh, the, the problem that the, the therapy in the past didn't work, but, and they, and, and these people that want to get off Suboxone, for example, they might do well for a couple of years and then something happened. The purses, the persons, places, and things we talked about earlier can trigger something. Uh, but the, that's not a weakness or a failure. That's what happens in this disease. So to say that, you know, there's a high incidence of recidivism, uh, it doesn't mean that the therapies don't work. It means maybe that the therapies worked, something else happened. Uh, there's lots of factors involved here. We do know that, that there is treatment. That treatment does, is effective. And uh, the key is that when, we, when somebody does relapse, we recognize that get them back into therapies that worked for them. Okay, we're getting close to the end here, Pat. Let me, we, we, we're, as you know, this is single payer radio. We, the three of us are part of a group that's promoting, you know, Medicare for all a change in the healthcare system in this country. Can you give us a sense of how the, the ability of, of, of someone with this problem to get treatment would change if we had instead of having the healthcare industry we've got we had a, a single payer system or a system like they've got in every other first world country where there's universal health care in in Britain or in France or the Canadian the Canadian how 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 would the ability to manage this problem be different if we had a healthcare system that was was more universal? And I think we're about five, we'd get to about to the last five minutes there, four minutes here. Well, okay. Well, as I said, the number one reason that people gave, and it's at least one study I just looked at, that they did not have treatment was because of insurance issues. You know, people are ready for this. They what they want to check themselves into rehab, for example. They go there and they go, well, right, yeah. we, did, we checked your insurance and we, we don't, it's not covered. So why don't you go do this or that? You know, and, uh, you know, that's really a, that's really tragic because, again, that that golden moment to help them. So if uh, if we had a system where where it was not a, that the insurance issues was not a barrier to care, that would that would make a huge difference. And, and the medications, for example, are expensive. Suboxone is not a generic medicine, as far as I know. It's 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 expensive. It's very effective, but it's it's just it's hard to get sometimes. And I know a lot of patients that I have, they have insurance, but they pay they pay have to pay cash for their suboxone because the insurance won't cover it. So it's a it's a, it's a private insurance issue as well. In Kentucky, we've done away with hopefully recently did away with the 
requiring prior authorizations for gets for suboxone therapy for this type of treatment. And I don't know how that's worked out yet so far, but but see, there are there are things that were that we're trying to do to improve that access. So the I don't know exactly which system is the the best one, but I can just tell you that whatever system that we're going toward, this is a huge crisis. It's a huge problem. We need to recognize that and remove these financial barriers to patients getting this treatment because they are dying in the hundreds of thousands, and it's not getting better. We're going to have to leave it there, Pat. I want to thank you. This was really a, a great program. We've learned a lot. I think Gene wants to make one more final comment, and then Mark is going to close it out. Very, okay. Very quickly, Gene. I, I got a burning can I, can I Can I give a phone number? the drug addiction problem uh, without trying to do something about the cartel in Mexico? I'm sorry. What was the question? Can we solve the drug addiction problem without trying to do something about the cartel in Mexico that's selling all these drugs? Well, that's just one factor. As I said, the supply of the, of the, of the substances is, well, is, well, I, I, is I the big I, thing. I don't okay. think we're going to be able to get into all no. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Dr. Murphy. I think yeah. we, we, have to treat the, we have to treat the patient first, though. We, it starts with the patient. Let's, let's, let's leave it with that. And I want to give a number here. If anybody wants to help right. with this, call 1-800-662-HELP, 1-800-662-4357. They will get you help. Fantastic. Dr. Murphy, thanks so much for this important information. Uh, and I hope that policymakers in Kentucky um, receive this message because we can't incarcerate our our way out of this problem. Um, more, um, more New Testament, less Old Testament. Uh, for more information about the group uh, Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare, you can go to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org, and 1-800-662-HELP. Dr. Murphy, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks very again, good. Pat. You were great. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.